Imagine not having a voice to communicate the pain and the torment that your mind and your spirit and even your physical body is going through. Imagine having ears, but they don't work. And so you can't hear the comforts of other people as they try to pour life into you. And that is where this man found himself. He was deaf and he was mute. And the Bible says he was tormented by spirits. And so the man's friends took him, this spirit-possessed gentleman, to the only person they knew that could potentially help him. And so they usher him to a rabbi named Jesus. And it's there that Jesus immediately heals the man. And he can speak, and he can hear, and he was returned into his right mind. And when the crowd saw that, they began to proclaim Jesus as Messiah. Is this not the son of David? That declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel. Is this not he? Look at the works in which he does. And yet his critics were there in the peanut gallery. There the Pharisees were in the group. And they began to tell the crowd, he doesn't do this based on God's power. He does it based on the power of Beelzebub. And so Jesus says, I cast out Satan with Satan. And then he gives this powerful word of advice. A kingdom divided cannot stand. A city and a home divided will not stand. Jesus says this, when a country is divided, when there's civil war, when brothers take, takes arms against brothers, that nation, that country will not stand. It will absolutely collapse on itself. When a family is at odds with one another and they're seeking a divorce, a family divided cannot stand. When the church is divided and at odds with one another, the church cannot stand. The power of perseverance comes through the power of unity. The only way the local congregation survives is if the local congregation is on the same team, working with the same mission under the same rules for the same purposes. And that is what brings us or ushers us into our text for this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 8. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn on there to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to take verses 8 through 17. Now, for those who haven't been with us or those of us who have been going through the journey in the book of 1 Corinthians, let's just kind of catch you up so we don't get lost in the sauce. Paul in chapters 1 and chapters 2 is saying this profound statement that God's wisdom and power, which is the gospel, is powerful, more powerful than the wisdom and the power of man. In other words, the gospel is more powerful than any philosophy, any false religion, any way that mankind can fashion or create. And God proves that gospel through our salvation. How is God's power and wisdom on display? Through your salvation, which Paul says happens before the ages began. That's the wisdom and power of God, that we have been called to sainthood, that every Christian that's you and that's me and the people to your left and to the right in this room are called saints. And Paul lays out the wisdom and power of God's calling. Then we get into chapter three. Now that we are saints, how are we to act? We are to be unified, be on one team. And so Paul now introduces the idea of Christian service. We get now into ministry into service. And Paul says, inside the church, in the building up of the church, when you serve the Lord, do it the right way. Why? Because we will be judged for our actions. And that's the thrust of our passage this morning. Why are we to be unified? 
because everything you and I do within the body will be judged by Jesus Christ. Therefore, walk worthy. And that's the thrust of our passage. So let's open it up. First Corinthians chapter three, starting at verse eight. And this we covered last week, so we'll just touch on it and move from there. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building, according to the grace of God, which was given to me. Like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So we're going to look at two things. The workers, verses 8 through 11, or 8 through 10, and then the workers' warning, verses 11 through 17. So let's look at the workers, verse 8 through 11. Paul says this, or writes this, Now he who plants and he who waters are one. So in ministry, we're all on the same team. But each will receive his own reward according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building, according to what? The grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder. I laid a foundation and another is building on it. So the picture here, the analogy is a construction project. It is a building. And Paul says in verse nine that we are God's fellow workers. Now, in that analogy, what Paul is saying is the Christian who serves the Lord is contracted out by God. So when you think of a construction project, there's a million different positions. There's not one guy who does the whole thing, right? There are people who lay the foundation. There are framers. There are roofers. There's electricians, carpenters, plumbers, so on and so forth. Every single one of them put in their labors, their talents, their efforts for the purpose of building up the house. Does that make sense? That means, Christian, you are a fellow worker of God. What does that mean? God contracted you out. God has called you to work, fulfill, to do your job. And it is according to God's grace. Not because I'm smart or you're smart or we're witty or collectively we're a beautiful group of people, but because God is gracious, he called you to serve. He called you to the ministry, to work alongside him for the purpose of building up the house. If you think about it, Paul says this, we are bond slaves, servants of Jesus Christ. What are we doing? Building the house, building the estate expanding his kingdom. We are contractors. Now, just like on the construction project, we all have differing positions. Notice what Paul says in verse uh, 10. Like a, ma a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. The other specifically is Apollos. 
In Acts 18, he was the pastor that took over when Paul planted the church. Paul planted Corinth, and how long was he there? Do you remember? Acts, there you go. Acts chapter 18, verse 9. A year and six months, or 18 months, Paul was in Corinth. He planted the church, he leaves it under Apollos, who is the pastor teacher, and then he goes off to plant another church. The idea here is we're all called to ministry by God's grace, but we all differ in position, all differ in calling. So let's look at the structure of the church. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. Paul writes this, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. Why did God put apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in the church? To equip the saints. Who are the saints? You are called saints. Why am I here on Sunday morning? Not to do everything. Not so that I can get a pat on the back or receive a wage or have uh, credentials or have pastor in front of my name. I am here for one purpose, to equip you. What do you do then? Look at what Paul says. For the equipping of the saints for the work of who's doing the service? You. How backwards is the American church where the clergy, where the the senior pastor does everything, has all the power, all the money, all the influence, decides what everything and uh, everything is done inside the church. And they're the ones who do all the laboring and all the work. They're the God of the church. This is not so. We are here to provide you with the ability to serve God. Now look at these positions. First is apostles. These were a very specific office, a very unique office. And the New Testament says there are three requirements for apostleship. Requirement number one, you have to be chosen by the risen Lord. When you look at the upper room, Jesus says, have I not chosen you? And yet one of you is the devil. When Jesus saw Peter and the boys fishing, he says, drop your nets and what? Follow after me. He tells them, you didn't choose me. I chose you. If you look at the apostles, every one of them, even Judas, hand selected. Even the one born out of due season, which is Paul the apostle. Uh, an apostle born out of due season. Did he see the risen Lord? Absolutely. Do you remember on his way up to the, the Damascus, on the Damascus road? He was hand selected. Ananias says, do you not know this guy? He, he's a persecutor of the church. And what does Jesus say to Ananias? He is my, what? Chosen vessel. And I will show him how much he'll suffer for my namesake. Number two, the apostles had to see the resurrected Lord. Remember in the upper room, Thomas says, unless I see him, unless I put my fingers in the actual holes, I'm not going to believe it. And Jesus pops up and he says, all right, Tom, go for it. Go ahead. Stick your fingers in my holes. I'm real. And he said, my Lord and my God. Now, again, Paul, did he see the risen Lord? Yes qualifies. Here's the third qualification of an apostle. It comes in Second um, Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. 2 Corinthians 12, 11 and 12. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect I was inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am nobody. Verse 12, here's the requirement of apostleship, and then you let me know if there's apostles around. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and miracles. 
So to be an apostle, you have to be chosen by Christ, seen the resurrected Lord, and your ministry must be accompanied by signs, wonders, and miracles. Why? It validated their testimony. You go to a place where they're preaching all kinds of foreign gods and you say, your God's wrong, my God's right. How do you prove that? Through signs and wonders and miracles. If Paul says, I have the right God, and then you see him resurrect somebody from the dead, you're probably going to lean on his God. You're probably going to think, hey, this person or his theology is different. So the apostleship was for one purpose, and that was to lay the foundation of the church. The prophets, the same thing. This office is to preach God's word. We think of a prophet as what? Miss Chloe. That's what we've reduced a prophet to. They go to their crystal ball and they tell us the future. That's not the prophets. The prophets preach God's word. They exhort God's word. In the New Testament, in the new church, early church, did they have the Bible? Not really. They had the apostles doctrine. They had some letters from Paul circulating. They didn't have the Bible. So how would they hear from God? The apostles and their doctrine and then prophets exercising prophecy. So you look in the book of Acts and you see two offices that are active. Prophets and apostles. Why? Ephesians chapter 2 tells us the answer. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the whom and prophets. And who's the cornerstone? Jesus Christ. Why were the apostles and the prophets there to make sure that the church was actually founded on earth? Through signs, miracles, wonders, and by preaching and, and foretelling the future. The church foundation has been laid. The scriptures have been canonized. And we no longer are in need of that foundation and prophetic ministry. Is there prophecy today? Yes. But it's not necessarily in the sense of telling you next week at this time you're going to run through a red light and get hit by a car, so on and so forth. It's exhorting people or calling people back to God's word. So the foundation of the church was through the apostles and the prophets. So what does Paul say in our text? I laid the what? Foundation and another one built upon me. Apollos' job was not to be an apostle because he was not called to that. His job was to teach. And so he was building on that foundation. So we have the apostles, we have the prophets, and then we have uh, a couple more group of people. We see in it, going back to Ephesians 4 and verse 11. Goodness. Ephesians 4 verse 11. Prophets and some as evangelists. Now, the evangelist is one who goes outside the walls of the church and brings people to the faith. If the world was a water well, the evangelist is the bucket. They go into the world and they draw people out of the world into living water, into life. Now, evangelism has been, in our eyes, somebody who preaches to a million people at a stadium or somebody who preaches the gospel within the church. The real evangelist is one who shares the gospel to unsaved people to call them to repentance. So if you're on your job site and you find yourself always sharing the gospel, calling people to repentance, if you're at the gym or you're at the soccer uh, team meeting or the PTA meeting, whatever it is, and you constantly are finding yourself talking about the Lord, calling people to repentance, sharing the gospel, there is a very good chance you've been called to an evangelist. You've been called to bring people in. So you bring people unsaved, they get saved, and then what do you do? You bring them home. You bring them into the church. Now in America, what have we done? Get all the unsaved people and invite them indoors, and then let the pastor hopefully evangelize. The evangelist is to go out, get them saved, and then bring them in. 
And that is to hold the purity and the holiness within the church. So we have evangelists, and then we have the pastor's teachers. These are shepherds who feed. What's the point of a pastor teacher? To lead, to feed, and to protect. To lead the flock according to the word of God, to feed the flock the word of God, and then to protect the flock from false doctrine. That's the purpose of the pastor teacher. Now there's one other group, and that is where all Christians are ministers. And that is in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8. So we have the apostles and the prophets who laid the foundation of the church, and then now we are building it up through evangelists, pastors, teachers, and here's the last group. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sorbid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also be tested. Then let them serve as deacons. The word serve means in a holy religious rite. Women, and that's not the normal Greek word for women. It's the Greek word deaconess. So here you have women servants must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, Faithful in all things, deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and of their household. For those who have served well as deacons obtain themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So the deacon and deaconesses, two times they use this word serve, and it means to serve in in a liturgical manner or like a priest. If you think of the Catholic Church and the robes and, and all the religious rites that they go through, that's the idea. You are saved, you are built up through the evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the ministry so that you can be the deacon and deaconesses of the church. What do they do? Pretty much everything. The deacon, deaconess, are, is, and always will be the lifeblood of the church. Small groups, cleaning the church, inviting people, uh, going out and, and delivering, working on the, the website, cleaning the pool, anything and everything, encouraging the body, comforting one another, counseling, all of these things fall into the, the liturgical duties of a deacon, and deaconess. And this is what God has called every one of us to. And unlike evangelists, unlike pastors, and unlike teachers, there's no requirement for capability. There's no requirement for ability or talent or giftedness. What does God require of you? Be holy. Be holy. Just say, yes, Lord and honor him. And then you are in a place to serve God in a mighty way. And this is the church. We got to get moving here. I'm sorry, folks. So that's the workers. Now let's go back to our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And now let's look at the warnings. We are all workers in the Lord. Now let's look at the warnings. Warning number one, we have to build up to code. You construction guys know you can build any sort of way you want. It's going to get tore down if it's not built to code, right? And you also know that you can try to build things the way you want, but there are things called natural laws like gravity that cause you to not build the way you want to build. So the idea is we must build the house in a correct manner. So what is that matter? Verse 11, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid. Now, who laid it? No, who laid the foundation? The apostles and the prophets. The apostles and the prophets. They laid the foundation. And who is that foundation? There you go. Jesus Christ. What is the church built on? The gospel. Who is the church built on? The gospel of Jesus Christ. 
This is the church. And I know this is a profound thought, but it's true. There is no Christianity without Christ. Do you believe that? Because there are a lot of people who think you can have Christianity without Christ. There is no Christianity without Jesus Christ. Look at Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13. Jesus is having a, a, a rough time in ministry. And now him and his boys are in Caesarea Philippi, a beautiful area. And the Lord asks his disciples this question. Matthew 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others, Elijah, but others still Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Remember from two weeks ago, Paul was saying that the, the wisdom of the world is trumped by the wisdom of God and that the wisdom of the world cannot understand the things of God. Do you remember that from two weeks ago? And the natural man cannot understand a supernatural gospel unless God supernaturally intercedes. How can a finite being understand the infinite without the infinite interceding on his or her behalf? What does Jesus say? Peter confesses Jesus as the son of God and, and Jesus says, flesh and blood have not revealed that to you. Your own human intuition, your own wisdom, your own natural ability has not brought you to that confession. How was Peter enlightened? God the Father. My Father in heaven revealed that to you. Going on, he says, I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now the Catholic church has made Peter the rock. And so Peter's the first pope. And if you know that Peter's standing at the pearly gates and he's the one that says, okay, you can either come in or you don't come in. And it's because they have taken this verse and completely twisted it. Peter is not the rock in which the church was built on. Peter would run away and deny the Lord three times, not much long after this. Jesus was saying the confession in which Peter proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is the bedrock of the church. That's the testimony. And through that, their church will never be overpowered. Now look at First uh, Peter chapter 2. In First Peter chapter 2, verse 4, he writes this, And coming to him... As to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through whom? Jesus Christ. He is the bedrock of the church. And so Paul says, if any man build upon another foundation, let him be accursed. So when it comes to you and I, our labor has to be for the Lord. The Mormons, they're laboring. The Jehovah's Witnesses, they're laboring. The Muslims, they see Jesus and they say of him that he is a, a sinless holy, born of a virgin prophet who does many, many miracles, but he's not the Christ. There are many religions and philosophies of men that put Jesus in a box, but that's not who he really is. We must see him for who he is, the son of God, the Christ. So the foundation we must labor in the Lord and must be upon Christ. That's our code.
Now we are tested. Our inspection is then underway. We build, we labor according to the code. Then verses 12 through 15, we go through inspections. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man works, which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as though through fire. So here we build and now we have the inspector come through and he inspects our work. Now our work can amount to six types of materials broken up into two groups, and they're right there on the screen. Group number one are the precious, and group number two are the unworthy things. And the thing we have to see about it is how they react to fire. Group number one, gold, silver, precious stones, when you put them in fire, what happens? They become refined, purified, pure, genuine, whole. What happens when you put wood, hay, and stubble or wood, hay, and straw into the fire? Burns up, turns to ash, and lost in history forever. Our works are going to go before Christ, and he will judge us for every single thing we have done in the body. Now, this is Paul drawing the Corinthians in and saying, listen, Stop being divided and stop fighting one another because you will be judged according to your works. Notice Paul says, according to the day. And that's a specific time. And that's the day of the Lord. It's an event. It's not a 24-hour period, but it's an event, an epoch, an era in which Christ comes the second time. And he judges the living and the dead through two judgments. Judgment number one, what is it? The great white throne judgment. And that's Revelation 20. And if anybody is found before that throne, it is too late. No believer will ever be before that throne. It's an impossibility. Why? Because you were called saints before the foundations of the earth. The people who stand before the great white throne are those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. These are people who willingly reject the gospel and God gives them their wish. You don't want me? I'm going to honor you and I will give you an eternity absent of my glory absent of my goodness. You don't want me. I don't want you. I will give you what you desire. That's the great white throne. And that is where the souls of men, along with Satan and the demons, are thrown into the lake of fire. This is known as the second death. Good news for us, we will never be before that throne. So what judgment are we talking about? We are talking about the Bema Seat of Christ. So Romans 14 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So we'll go to Romans 14 first. And verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess, shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, 2 Corinthians 5 gives us a little bit more detail. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the judgment seat is Bema. And so in Corinth, they had the Isthmian Games, which is the second biggest games in the world. And then down the road, you had the Olympia. 
and the Olympic Games. And so they understood this whole thing about running the race um, and Bema seats and athleticism and the whole thing. This Bema seat is where the winners receive their prize. It's where they get their crowns. It's where they get their medals. It's where they run the race. They win the race and then they're rewarded for their efforts. We will stand before that seat. It's a seat of rewards so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So we all are called ministers. We are all members, therefore we're ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And every one of our actions are going to be judged before the Bema seat of Christ. And if we do good, we receive rewards. What are those rewards? We'll have to see. What I do know about them is they are eternal. Store up your treasures where? Why? Where? Robbers can't come and steal. Moths can't eat and rust don't destroy, right? Jesus saying, work for heaven because that's an eternal thing. Our house is going to leak. The the, the pipes are going to burst. The car is going to break down. All these things we labor for in this world, you know, the bench press, 300 pounds, whatever. The body fails. All of it fails. It's all temporal. Jesus saying, live for heaven because that's eternal. And you will be judged and you will be rewarded if you have been faithful for your service. And if you have not been faithful your works will be burned away. Now, does that mean we lose our salvation? No. Look at verse, I think it's uh, verse 15. Going back to our text. Paul says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be what? Yet as through fire. What is Paul saying? You're going to get to heaven anyway. You can get there dragging and crying and screaming. God's going to get you there and it's going to be a hellish experience. He's going to pull your ear the whole way home. Or you can be obedient and go about it in a mature way and your life will be peaceful, will be good, will be honorable, will be loving, will be kind, and will be marked with self-control. That's the idea. You can labor for the Lord. You cannot labor for the Lord. You can labor the right way. You cannot labor the right way. But if you don't, your life's going to be a mess. Why? You have too much of God to be happy in the world, and you have too much of the world to be happy in God. So you're the most miserable person in the world. The unsaved person, they eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow they die. The Christian lives for the Lord for all eternity. The one in between, stuck. Too dirty to be clean and too clean to be dirty. So you're just in this nasty limbo of frustration. Now, the next big question is, what separates a good labor from bad labor? Good work from bad work. A fruitful worker versus an unfruitful worker. So two things that I found in scriptures that specifically speak on this. So James Chapter 1, and I think I have them marked out for you. James chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres. That means long suffers. That means is faithful under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. James says, hey, Life is hard. Wear a helmet. It's difficult. There's going to be trials and tribulations. You are called to persevere. You are called to be faithful. Now go to, uh, what is it? First Corinthians chapter nine. Oh, I'm sorry. Galatians chapter six, starting at verse nine. Galatians six, nine. Let us not lose heart in doing good. That's building the house the right way, working good works. For in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
So what is the first thing that determines a good work? Our faithfulness and our perseverance to see it through. It's our faithfulness. You get into the ministry and nobody shows up to your Bible study. Do you just quit? Do you just say, forget it. This is not for me. I'm just, I'm done. I'm going to, I'm going to go try something else out. Or do you just see it through until the end? God has not called you specifically to be the Billy Grahams of the world. He hasn't called you maybe to preach in front of millions. Maybe you don't have a ministry where the world records your name. But God has called you to be faithful at whatever the Lord's called you to be. So if you want to build rewards or produce fruit that will last eternity, you must be faithful to the faith and faithful to the call and see things through no matter how hard those trials are. So number one, it's faithfulness to your own service. Number two, and this is uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24. The second thing we must be able to do is have self-control over our own bodies. Because we can be faithful, let's say, in serving the Lord in one capacity, but we can totally blow our ministry if we're not practicing what we preach. So we have to have a faithful ministry alongside self-control of the flesh. And so notice verse 24, chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run a race, or do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in games exercises self-control in all things. So the Olympian games, think you're a boxer, you're a wrestler. Imagine the self-control you have to have to make weight on a scale. That means you can't eat. That means you got to do cardio when you don't want to. You got to work out when you don't want to. You have to train when you don't want to. In order to be the very best in sports and athletics, You have to bring everything under subjection. You're not a world champion at anything unless you are a disciplined person who can control yourself. This is Paul's point. Everyone who competes in games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. What is Paul saying? If an athlete who runs for a perishable prize controls all of their fleshly desires, then how much more should we, the church, who are running and laboring for imperishable, eternal rewards, control our own bodies? And then the apostle says something that I see many Christians struggling with. He says, I'm not living my life aimlessly. I'm not just waking up and just going through the motions with no purpose. Because five years later, I haven't made any progress. I'm the same exact person I was five years ago. Paul is saying, I don't shadow box. I don't beat my chest. I don't do things that bring no value. What I do is I have a purpose and I control my fleshly desires so that I can reach my goal. Just like an Olympiad will control their fleshly desires so that they can win the prize. So self-control and faithfulness are the keys to building up good fruit. Where do we see those two things? Think. Where are those two things listed? Self-control, faithfulness. Galatians 5, the fruits of what? The Spirit. Remember last week, and if you weren't here, that's okay. Paul says, I wanted to give you the milk of the word, but you could not take it because you are still, RG? Fleshly. You're still in the flesh, and it's evident. And he says, jealousies and strife 
The root cause of division is the flesh. And the symptoms of the flesh is jealousy and fighting. And that therefore caused division in the church. The Corinthians were operating in the flesh and the church was divided. What is Paul saying? If you want fruits that last forever, be faithful and be self-controlled. In other words, operate under the power of what? The Holy Spirit. The church at Corinth were operating in their own flesh and it showed through a divided church. Paul is saying we're on the same team. We're all workers of the same faith and we're all working for the same goal to build the same house and we all will be judged according to our works. Therefore, walk in the spirit so that the evidences of the the spirit are in your life, mainly self-control. You don't disqualify yourself from ministry and the giftedness and faithfulness to see it through until the end. Now, here's the third thing, and we'll be quick with this. Here's the third warning for the workers. God judges his church, and God will judge you. Look at verse uh, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Paul gives this rhetorical question ten times in Corinthians. He starts it off with, do you not know? And that's like us saying, have have you been sleeping under a rock? Were you just born yesterday? Can you not grasp these common sense things? And what is Paul saying? That the church, listen to this, that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, this is fascinating. The words you are plural, but the word temple is singular. And Paul here is talking about the universal church. The church as a whole. That means every congregation throughout the entire world as one singular entity is the temple of God and the Holy Spirit resides within that congregation. That's why the Bible says the Lord inhabits the praise of his people. Where the people of God gather, God himself dwells. Why? We are the temple. Now, Paul blows our minds even more in chapter 6 when he goes from the church universal down to the singular Christian and says your body is actually a temple of the Holy Spirit too. Now that's mind-blowing. But for this one, he's talking about the universal church, that it is the temple. And there's two words in Greek for temple. One is temple proper, and it means the whole structure. The second one is neos, And that's the one Paul uses here. And it specifically refers to the sanctuary or the holy of holies. Now, going back to the Old Testament temple, what was in the holy of holies? And and who was in the holy of holies? The Lord. It's where God dwelt on earth. Paul is saying, church, you cannot be divided. Why? As the entity, the body of Christ, you are the temple and the Holy Spirit, God, dwells on earth amongst you. Therefore, there can be no division. Now, Paul goes on and he says, what happens if somebody is to divide? Verse 17, if any man destroys the temple of God, the word destroys means to defile or to rot. If anyone causes the temple of God or the church to defile or rot, God will destroy him. The word destroy means bring to ruin. If a person goes to to destroy, cause discord among the brethren, create factions, God will protect the unity of his church by destroying or ruining that person's life. Now, the church, we are the body of Christ, right? And so if someone messes with the body, who who fights for us? Jesus. Whose body are we? 
Jesus's body. If someone punches me on the chest, I'm going to fight, right? I'm going to protect my body. That's why when Saul was persecuting, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He didn't say that. Why are you persecuting Christians? He didn't say that. Why are you persecuting what? Me. Me. The church is the body, and you attack the body, you're attacking Christ. The church is also whom? The bride of Christ. Husbands, who? what happens if a man goes and tries to defile your wife? What is the husband, what's the groom going to do to you? You're going to be scrapping. I, I, I'm going to be scrapping. Maybe you guys are too holy. I'm going to be upset, right? In the same way, when somebody defiles the bride of Christ, the groom will take arms. And in the same way, we are a temple. Someone goes and defiles the temple, the temple will be cleansed. I'll read two verses and then we'll close. In the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 15, verse 31, it says this, Thus you shall keep the sons of Israel separated from their uncleanness, so that they will not die in their uncleanness by their defiling. My tabernacle, that is among them. And in Numbers 19 and verse 20, But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself from uncleanliness, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water for impurity has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. In the Old Testament, when someone defiles the temple, what do they do? What what happens? The person is what? removed, booted. Chapter 5, we're going to see where a young man sleeps with his dad's wife. And Paul's answer, boot them out the church. Why? We are the temple of God. Now go back to our text. He answers it. For the temple of God is what? Holy. And that is who you are? No. What does Paul say? That is what you are. Going back to the last couple of weeks, our position in Christ is holy. We are holy, therefore, we must act like our heavenly father. The problem at Corinth was their practice or their lifestyle wasn't lining up with their lineage. Their position, holiness, their practice, unholiness. Paul says, get your practice in line with who you are. You are the temple of God. Therefore, you are holy. Therefore, serve the, serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Amen. Amen. All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your text. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you that it is just so incredibly rich. And that, Lord, you've caused and called every one of us to serve you in the Spirit. Father, I pray for the faithful deacons and deaconesses of this church who have been serving faithfully, Lord. I pray in these next couple months that you would give them even greater opportunity, even greater privilege to serve. I pray for those, Lord God, who have been serving and who have answered the call and who have stepped up to the plate. And even though it's not been easy, they've been laboring faithfully and in self-control. And Lord God, I pray that you would bless them with much fruit. And to those, Lord, who haven't stepped up, haven't walked up to the plate, haven't said, here I am, Lord, send me. Haven't been faithful in their duties. I pray, Lord, that you would nudge them in the right way, that they wouldn't feel so guilty that they would run from you, but that would they would be convicted in such a way that they would run towards you. Lord God, would you allow journey to be a place of holiness and happiness as we seek to serve you in every way possible. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.
We're going to be going into our time of communion. If you would just begin to prepare your hearts.
For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you take and eat? In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you take and drink? Lord Jesus, what can we say? We are going to spend all eternity giving praise to you. Thank you for this time that we get to commune with you, the God of our salvation, the anchor of our soul, the bedrock of our faith, the great I am, the eternal one, the first and last, the alpha and omega, the ancient of days. We love you and we thank you. Jesus is our Messiah. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.